Um, hello, everyone, and welcome to this session of the 2021 Adelaide Writers' Week. It is absolutely delightful to be with you in real life here today with these three contributors to the 71st edition of Griffith Review, Remaking the Balance, Gabrielle Chan, Nadi Simpson and Claire Wright. Sorry, over the birds. <laughs> um, my name's Ashley Hay, I'm the editor of Griffith Review and I'm delighted to be talking with Gabrielle, Nadi and Claire about their contributions to an edition of which I'm very proud, an exploration of resources, both tangible and intangible, an exploration of different kinds of value and an exploration of a critical current question, how can we change what we do with what we have? Uh, I need to do some COVID words for you. Uh, I need to say thank you so much for all being here. <laughs> Um, while it's fantastic to see you here, we do need to make sure you all stay apart from each other. So please keep the empty chairs between you. And if you're around the edges and standing up, please make sure that you're socially distanced as well. Um, we're asking you to support the authors by purchasing books, of course. The authors will be at the signing table after this. And there's a quick sale counter where you can purchase your copies. I also want to say a huge thank you to all of the volunteers who've done an amazing, amazing job of moving us all around and getting us to where we need to be and keeping us safe and keeping us happy and keeping everything um, as it should be. Thank you to all the people in the green shirts. Uh, we're going to talk for about 45 minutes up here and we'll leave some time for your questions at the end. There's a microphone in the minute and I'll let you, in the middle, sorry, and I'll let you know when you should start to move towards there. Before I introduce you properly to Nadi, Claire and Gabby and their work, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, the lands on which we meet, the Ghana people, and to acknowledge to the custodians of the other lands from which our panel and our audience come. I recognise and respect the cultural heritage, belief and relationships of the Ghana people with the land and I acknowledge that these are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. I'd like to acknowledge the elders of this place in particular and also of this continent, past and present, and to acknowledge to the millennia of stories and storytellers that this continent has hosted. It's a privilege to share our stories here today. I'd like to do things a little bit differently and step straight from those words and words about this continent's first people and the world's longest ongoing civilization into Nadi Simpson's words. Nadi's piece, which is called Gifts Across Space and Time, is the first work to come out of a project that we're doing with Grace Lucas Pennington from the Black and Right Indigenous Editorial Project at the State Library of Queensland. I'm incredibly thrilled that this is the first result of this collaboration. Nadi is a Yuwalare storyteller from the New South Wales freshwater floodplain. She is a 2018 Black and White Fellow, and her debut novel, The Song of the Crocodile, was published by Hachette. Gifts Across Space and Time is the first piece she's written for us at Griffith Review. Nadi, can I ask you to read us into this conversation? Ya mamalia, respects friends, to the lands we are both on. I can hear birds talking to each other and the newly arrived sunshine is beginning to bless the mornings. It is healthy and in full bloom. May your place continue to sing also and we sustain its song. My, regra my, my regards to your grandmother. I hope she's well. Maya Buggy is in Warrumbul and my nana and her sister both in heaven, but I know they are watching and are keen that I should make a good account of myself and in turn of them. Now to business. I'm about to share with you. I will give you words that will combine to make stories that will lead to thoughts and hopefully feelings. You are showing me respect through your listening and attention. If you had called me to listen to your thoughts and ideas, I would of course show you the correct respect, deferring to your words and allowing them precedence in our meeting. Hopefully our dreamings will weave together again soon and I will get the chance to return the favour. Let us call what we are about to do 
a speak, listen trade. Usually this type of trade sees words tumbling between people, some finding their way into dui or spirit essence, others dissolving into burugu. This way of talking is beautiful. Thoughts and fragments of information form and then melt away, others emerging to take their place. Our conversation becomes what is needed rather than what is sought. When this happens, bodies and minds feel good because we are connecting. It means we are looking, if, looking after each other and the words we exchange are caring for us too. Thank you, Nadi. I have to say, um, as an editor, I think, well, I'm incredibly privileged to work with the range of writers that I work with, but there are some pieces that I think as an editor you feel it's a bit of a gift to be able to present them to readers on your watch, and I, I think your piece, Nadi, is absolutely one of those. I'm, I'm delighted by it. It's also a beautiful way to come into the conversation we want to have this afternoon. So this edition of Griffith Review, Remaking the Balance, is an exploration of resources. And when we started to imagine it, we were working with the title Animal, Vegetable and Mineral. Um, we realised, as 2020 went along as it did, that it was also important to talk about intangible resources as well, things like hope and energy and narrative. We wanted to explore ideas of value and exchange and trade. So each quarterly edition of Griffith Review sets up a conversation between the different voices and ideas in its pages, as well, we hope, as a conversation amongst readers and you know between the readers and its words. And we've got some incredibly powerful pieces of writing in this book from writers including Sophie Cunningham and Joe Chandler, Katie Holmes and Anne Orford, Tony Wood and Barbara Kingsolver, who I'm very proud to have in there too. But Nadi, I want to start with your piece. There is something so lyrical and generous in this. It, it felt to me when I read it for the first time like it was a gift in and of itself to its readers. Can you describe this, the idea of the speak, listen, trade a bit more? It, it strikes me that it's part of what we're doing here today. Um, there's a point that you make a little further into the essay about the difference between doing this in conversation and doing this with words on the page. And I wondered if you could talk to us about that. Yeah, I, um, I came to this through a series of connections, really, uh, of people that were, oh, how would you say this? People that were signposts to relationships with others. That's mm. probably the best way to say it. So Grace Lucas Pennington, who asked me if I would be interested in uh, contributing to this, was working with you. And so I was writing a connection to this young lady who has been very important in my life. Mm. She's my editor um, for my first ever book. And there was a beautiful way that she wove into my life and was weaving all these wonderful women and this work into my life. So I wanted to do something that um, spoke about how, I'm going to say this word, how sacred that relationship was to me. Mm. But that sacredness opens up sacredness in other relationships. And when you start like that, the chain continues. And the people who are involved in that are moving in that way too. Mm. So the speak, listen, trade really, uh, where I'm from, we've we got this hole. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great selling point for Uluroy country, but there's a hole. <laughs> Out on boundary lines. And in that hole, you place something that is going to be of use to unknown people and unknown communities. But it's on the boundary, so it, you're connected. And this is a, you know, I don't understand it, but it's a beautiful thing. Trying to anticipate the needs and the wishes of others. Mm. In helping them, yes, to have a beautiful life, full of, you know, 
art and dance and uh, but there's also a necessity. It's no good putting something in there that won't be of use. So you really need to project what is going to be of use for somebody you've never met. Mm. What an amazing concept. To me, that's, you know, Yuluri people do it, but it's a black fella thing. We can all find the beauty in trying to find space for the unknown in your life and helping somebody else, which is a, a reflection to me of what Grace has done uh, and those series of relationships that mirror those things. I want to come back to the whole, because as you say, <laughs> it's kind of important. <laughs> but it struck me when, when I read your piece for the first time, the thing that was so moving, one of the things that was so moving and beautiful about it was, it was the opposite, it was talking about something that was the opposite of extractive, yeah. the opposite of extracting anything. Mm. Um, it was about depositing, it was about gifting, it was about sharing, and that was very moving in and of itself because so many of the other pieces in the collection are dealing with extraction in some ways. So we have a beautiful piece by Elspeth Proben about trash fish, sand and sea snails, which talks about the importance of preserving the very smallest of our resources. And we've got a stunning piece by Leslie Hughes, which talks about our troubled relationship with the entire planet. But I want to bring Claire Wright in now. Claire's the Professor of History at La Trobe University and her book, The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka, won the 2014 Stella Prize and the Nib Literary Award. Her most recent book is You Daughters of Freedom. And Claire, your piece, Masters of the Future or Heirs of the Past, is about that most extractive of industries, mining. And in this piece, you're comparing essentially two of the very foundational narratives of post-colonial Australia, gold mining in Ballarat in the mid-19th century and the mining of bauxite about 100 years later up in the north of Queensland. So I wanted to start by asking you about the way the mining narrative has been framed, the status it's been given in post-colonial in Australia, and to pick up on the potential you draw between those diggers in the ground and those other diggers who we make so much of in our national story. Thanks, Ash. Um, two big and, and related but separate questions in a way, so I'll mm. try to, to address uh, the two of them. And just to um, briefly um, clarify that point, bauxite mining that I talk about um, in the 1960s was in the Northern Territory. Oh, sorry, not in Yes. So um, looking at the well, what is known um, as the Gove Peninsula, um, the area around Yakala, the Miwatch area of the Yongle people of northeast Arnhem Land. So the mining narrative. Um, so, you know, interestingly, just talking about the connections, Nadi, listening to you, you and I, Ash, started having this conversation at Adelaide Riders Week mm. last mm. year. And... Um, and you know, the ideas have evolved, and at that stage, as you said, this edition was going to be about resources. And here I was writing about, so my next book is about uh, the bauxite industry um, in Yakala, and in particular, the Yakala Bark Petitions of 1963. And, um, and so these are, I was talking to you about these two connection points. Ballarat, 1854, the Eureka Stockade, those miners, those diggers, and then almost 100 years later, a little bit more, the Yakala Bark Petition. And, and wanting to join the dots between these two points because what happens in mining history is that it's always written as this progressive narrative of development. And when I say progressive, I don't mean left-leaning, clearly. Um, uh, I mean uh, it's a progress narrative that it's all about growth, that, that it's based on a language of exploitation, of extraction, and what you get in return from the exploitation is national development. In fact, in 1963, when this is going on in northeast Arnhem Land, the nation had a department for national development. That it was what it was called. It was basically kind of the mining department, but it was called national development. And so, 
I was concerned with the way that the narrative has always been structured in, in, in historically in works like The Rush That Never Ended, the most famous book on mining history by Geoffrey Blaney, which interestingly was first published in 1963. It's been through five editions since then, but it's never he's never revised, he's added a few bits and pieces into it, but never revised the essential narrative arc, which is that Australia was a wasteland and then white people realised there was stuff underground that was useful and by digging it up and manipulating it, either selling it or, or um, uh, you know, um, processing it uh, for our needs, the nation grew. Um, and so this becomes very much the 20th century narrative of progress as opposed to the 19th century of Australia rode on the sheep's back. In the 20th century, we rode on the back of the of a of a big yellow truck yeah and 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 this was what i wanted to pick up on because i was aware from my read from from my research into the eureka stockade that mining uh, mining sites are always sites of conflict so the progress narrative paints everything in rosy hues of national well-being, progress, growth, we're all going together in the same direction, which is um, going from nothingness to betterness, to, to from, from um, empty, literally terra nullius, empty to a land of plenty, the lucky country. But historically, mining sites have always been places of conflict. We saw it at Ballarat, which was a gold mining community with the Eureka Stockade um, that became known as the, the birthplace of Australian democracy because of the conflict that we all then learnt about in school. Um, my rewriting of that narrative in my book is writing women into that story. So that is what I was interested in. But I also, because of opening cracks in that narrative of mining um, in, in letting the women in, um, was also able to, and, and, and bouncing off the research of some of my colleagues, was able to look at the role of indigenous people in Ballarat as well. Because this narrative had always been written as if they just, they're just not there, they're not part of it. They're completely invisible um, and, and, neglig and, and negligible to the mining narrative. But there were people in Ballarat in the areas, the Watarung people, and they were incredibly important to the progress of that community at the, at the time. Miners would have starved without the meat that they hunted, and they would have frozen to death in winter without the possum skin cloaks that, that, um, the, um, that the Watarung made. Um, and also, Indigenous people were the first people who knew that there was gold in the ground. Mm -hmm. they, were, they acted as guides. They were, they, the, the gold rush was a second wave of dispossession. There's no, no doubt about that. But it's not true to also say that the Watarung were victims of mining. They were very entrepreneurial about what mining in the region brought them, which was all these people who had needs, in the same way that all of these new people who came to the colony, these miners, these diggers, um, on the diggings communities were entrepreneurial about seeking better lives for themselves. And we've, we've romanticised and canonised one version of that story, of the white diggers who came and made an, a land anew, and we've completely silenced the idea that Indigenous people might have done that. And in fact, I wanted to take it back one step further, which is to constitute our First Nations as our first miners because Indigenous people have always extracted resources from the land, whether that be ochre or greenstone or, or um, other stones for cutting implements, and they use these as resources in trade. Um, you know, you want to come on my land, what do you have to give me in exchange for coming on my land? What do you need? What This is what I need, you know, talking about what's in the hole and, and and anticipating what people's needs are going to be. There were, there were um, networks of trade and exchange going on all over Australia forever. And so to const what I was interested in is the idea of when you start to constitute First Nations as first diggers, how does that change the moral equation? How, do, how does that write them into the narrative? And so I wanted to do that by linking up Ballarat and Yakala in the bauxite mining there, because what happens at Yakala is that when bauxite miners start to come on and the prospectors come onto the land, 
um, and they realise that people are here and they want to use the land and use the resources without giving anything in exchange for it. Because the Yungu of North East Arnhem Land had always engaged in trade with the Macassans for, for hundreds of years um, and with Japanese pearlers. But it was like, you come to my land and you give me something and then I'll give you something in return, which is access to my land. But suddenly here were these white people who were here and didn't appear to be giving anything in exchange. And so they wrote the Yakala Bark petition to, um, to the uh, parliament, um, which did not, and it's really important to state this, it did not protest against mining. It protested against what had happened in the process of those miners coming on, which is not consulting them about mining, not seeking consent to be on the land and not giving anything in return. And so for me, that's what I wanted to do with that narrative is to, to problematise and make much more complex um, and much more inclusive our Australian narrative of mining and resource extraction. And then, of course, um, when we first started talking about it, Ash, um, Yukon Gorge hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. And by the time I came to write it, it had. So it was impossible to write this story without now another dot. Ballarat, 1854, Yukala, North East Island Land, 1963, Dukan Gorge, May 2020. Mm -hmm. Another um, uh, indication that, firstly, lessons of the past have not been learnt, um, but that this mining narrative is, is not over and it's not progressive and it's not moving forward in a, in a whole nother way. There's just such a profound difference between those various holes in the ground. <laughs> I want to um, just step out of the idea of this, this, this misunderstanding or this complete um, abrogation of, of sort of ideas of trade and exchange that come in, you know, through things like mining in Ballarat. And to step forward then um, and bring you, Gabby, into the conversation. So Gabrielle Chan is a writer and journalist whose most recent book, Rusted Off, was shortlisted for the Prime Minister's Literary Award and the Walkley Book Award. And Gabby, your essay, which bookends Nardi's in Remaking the Balance, is called Breaking New Ground. And you begin um, by exploring or by drawing a line from land management, you're on a farm in central New South Wales, to what you call the big economic and political questions. And this takes us into the next kind of development of ideas of trade and exchange um, and exploitation um, and, and sort of ways of reframing operational agriculture. So can we start with you by coming out from the sort of micro of your particular place to the macro of market demand and your observation that you know natural constraints in terms of agriculture are often at odds with human constraints and particularly around the expectations that farmers can somehow be the next iteration of Homo economicus, who's a very interesting creature in and of himself. Yeah, so this um, came out of my change, my move from uh, the city where I grew up to a country place and onto a sheep and wheat farm. And I've spent the last 30 years of my career pretty much concentrating on politics and the political debate in a very tight way, like in press galleries. So it's a, it, it's a very much skated along the surface of a lot of the policy debates around farming, even as I was living on a farm. And the older I got, the more I started to question the economic uh, paradigm, I guess, that I'd grown up in from the time I was a baby journalist, and that is, you know, the economic rational is the answer to everything, uh, and we don't consider other parts if they don't have a dollar value. Uh, and that was very much the narrative, really, from the Hawke-Keating government on, that these are the things that, they're truths that we don't question. And I'm not saying no one questioned it. A lot of people questioned it, and there was a lot of rational, rationalisation of, you know, labour markets. We got rid of a lot of industries. Uh, we treated people like crap in a lot of ways. And so, the more I started to think about how 
what is the right way to think about land in a farming context, the more I started to realise that I had to think about resources in all different types of ways. How do we manage landscape? You know, how did Indigenous people manage and continue to manage landscape? How does mining happen? How do we have these conversations in Australia that determine how much we use, how much we blow? Because humans have been a part of the landscape forever, right? Um, and I quickly realised that those conversations actually don't happen very often in a connected way. We don't think about, I have a garden plan for my, my garden and I think, oh, next time I do something, I might do something over here and I might do something with this and I might have a veggie patch here. And it struck me as odd that Australia had had, had this whole kind of agricultural narrative for itself but never really thought about how much of the natural resources we blow in the process of growing food, which parts we conserve, how we manage that land. And it was very much extractive in the sense um, for agriculture in terms of um, almost like mining country. So we grow stuff, we ship it out on a truck, and we get paid for it. And I think more and more in farming communities, and you're seeing the rise of regenerative agriculture now, there's this kind of realisation that maybe actually the way that we have farmed, the way that we have fed ourselves might not be the best way of doing it, or there might be better ways in local places of doing it that respond to what the land is, that it's not a one-size-fits-all economic argument, it's actually an argument about how much we want to use. And that connects all the way to the eater. So out of that conversation or, or train of thought, I started looking at natural capital, which is, you know, in economics terms, there's different types of capital, um, and natural capital is obviously looking at landscape as, as an asset, not only as a dollar asset, but how much do we value? And so, so I started having conversations with people like Ken Henry, the, the former head of Treasury, uh, who has real problems, even though he, he was in charge of measuring GDP, gross domestic product, for a long time, has problems with the way that that is framed. So we think of this as a GDP as a measure of our you know, living standards. But when we think about resources, you dig up a, a tonne of iron ore and it is very much, it appears on the balance books as coming out of nowhere. We don't think about what that takes away from future generations. We don't think about what it takes away from, from uh, the landscape. You know, you can still say, I want to sell that because I think the export of iron ore is important. But are you having a real conversation about what it actually means for future generations? And I guess that that tangent got me fascinated in the way that all of these things are interconnected. And I, I guess I used the last year of the pandemic thinking about, you know, how could we have a more intelligent conversation, which is why I struggled with the essay so much. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's really interesting is you know, in all of these stories, these are all stories of connection. These are all picking up on exactly that kind of starting point, you know, that sort of sparked your piece, Nadi. And I think um, when we were working on this book, we spent a lot of time talking uh, with a wonderful mathematical biologist in Melbourne called Jared Field, who's a Gomorrah man from Moree. And he had written for The Guardian before on bringing an ethical lens to bear on the question of resources and what's taken from the land. He talked about framing any question in terms of am I being a good ancestor? You know, how does this impact the future? He said, you know, it's, it's talking about asking how will this affect those people who come after? And he was arguing that if you weren't incorporating those questions in your science and engineering classes, you know, what was sort of coming, coming out the other end? And I wondered, Nadi, this idea of being a good ancestor, that intersects with the altruism, in a sense, of the exchange that you're describing at the whole, in the ground, but also 
the, the, the sort of generosity, I guess, and connection of the speak, listen trade. What, what happens if we place these ideas at the centre of the ways we approach the land, whether that's in terms of exchange, in terms of cultivation, or in terms of extraction? It's a beautiful way to be, but it's essential. Mm. Practical uh, and talking about connections and relationships and ancestry, these kind of ongoing threads of things. If one part of that is not working, it's all affected. Mm. It's probably the best way I can come at it. Uh, we're often, well, we're told, don't afford to own anything you can't give away. Mm. And that's a beautiful teaching, old fellas tell you. But it's actually um, the framework for survival in the environments from which we come. So while it is, and when you write it, you know, and it's all about uh, mining, uh, and asking other people to mine um, themselves in an ethical way. Uh, it's also asking you to be very precise about the way, the footprint that you leave for a practical reason. Mm. Not just because we want to grow into be deadly, you know, older black people. <laughs> uh, the way you are as a teaching, the way you interact with these places is uh, your actions are the thing you leave behind. That's here I go, oh, I'm getting there, I'm getting close. So there is this emotive thing. Mm. And that works if we're all the same. But if there's a chink in that armour, it sort of sends a shockwave, you know. Wait there, those fellas over there doing what? Mm. But I am connected to them. And the health of that country and the way those people interact actually affects me, even though, if it's, even though it's over the other side of the world or the side of the country. We under, understand ourselves as this link in a chain of which every segment is different, has its own strength, but is reliant on those near and far. So um, there's a sort of, there's a delicate balancing act for me because I love this stuff. I love writing about this. I love thinking about this stuff because it's all, it's old business and maybe hinting to new business and it's connecting people that would maybe not connect in certain ways. And there is a beauty in that. But there's also, you know, a really practical, sense of it being, we say this word a lot, law. And the laws are there in the Aboriginal world uh, to live right by your people and those others. It's a matter of life and death. Mm. That's the stakes are that high. This beautiful feeling, business, actually determines whether you are going to be an ancestor or not. So there's this gravity mm. in the beauty. You've got to have those two yarns side by side, I think. It's a nice way to be. It's, it is essential. Otherwise, you won't survive. Mm. And if you don't survive, that's going to have this ripple effect on your own community, your family, so, you know, it's like that, that uh, it is a ripple. That wave gets bigger and uh, more, it agitates more the further away it gets from you. So, uh, that's how I come at that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It does in my mind, I apologise <laughs> if it, the ripple doesn't hit your shore the way it should do. I think the ripple moves beautifully, <laughs> Nadi, um, and I think, I mean, again, we're back at that sort of space of interconnectedness. And I think 
there's something in the image that you just spoke about of the chink in the armour. I think it's a really interesting reflection, Claire, to the bark petitions that you're working on at the moment, which are like the, the inverse of that, because they're the moment where the people in Yakala take a symbol of colonial government and, you know, of a, of a process that's not theirs, bring it into their space and then hand it back. Can you talk a little bit about the sort of broader significance of the presentation of that particular petition, just in how it tried to change that narrative and perhaps failed? I would like to tell you that I also realised that I didn't quite answer the second half of your question before, which is about the diggers, and they do play in, so I might just just mm. recap. So, um, in, in talking about Indigenous people as integral to the mining industry, um, and, to, and to fighting on this extractive frontier, it does open up this opportunity to talk, to see the connections between in our language and our ideas in this idea of who are the diggers. So originally the diggers were the gold diggers of Ballarat in the gold, gold rush period. And then that was transposed to the battlefront of the First World War and they, the Anzacs became the diggers. And so we have this idea of them being, these guys are the good guys. You know, they're our warrior culture. They're our, they're our heroes, they make sacrifices. Um, they, they, uh, they fight for our freedoms, whether that is the, the miners of Eureka who fought for our rights and our democratic rights and liberties or for the members of the AIF who fought for, well, they actually weren't fighting for our freedom. That's a whole lot of crap that's been made up afterwards, but who were, you know, fighting for king and country, fighting for empire is what they were doing. Um, but there's an enormous amount of moral authority that's placed in, in that idea. And I first started thinking about this because when I was looking, um, starting my research into the Bach petitions, one of the things that really struck me from the contemporary newspapers and the ways that this um, conflict in northeast Arnhem Land was reported, and it was reported all over Australia because it came a very big national issue, as we'll discuss, was this was called the Peninsula Campaign. And I found that really interesting because I'd never heard, you know, the peninsula campaign to me meant the, the Gallipoli Peninsula. Um, that's often, um, Gallipoli is often referred to as the, as the peninsula campaign. But in 1963, what that meant was the Gove Peninsula. And it was about um, the contest for territory and land and who had control over it and who had uh, rights of access to it. And there were multiple players in this, in this particular peninsula campaign. There was the government of the time, it was the Menzies government, um, and the Minister for Territories, Paul Hasluck, uh, were the main, is the main player there. There's the mining companies, who were vying for access to what at the time was the Arnhem Land Reserve. It had been reserved land since 1931, um, meaning that if you uh, were not um, an Indigenous person from that area, you could not get access to this land unless you got a permit. Um, these, they were, the Indigenous people at this stage were wards. They were called wards of the state, um, the wards of the Northern Territory. Unless you were a ward, you couldn't be there. The mining companies wanted to be there. They had prospecting rights, um, but they didn't have mineral rights yet. They didn't have mining rights. There was the Methodist Overseas Mission, who were the ones who were running the Yakala Mission at the time, which is where all of the various clans um, of the Yungul Nation had um, gathered from the time that the mission was established in 1935. Uh, that's about 500 people who were living there permanently, 500 Yungu and, and, a, and a handful of missionaries. Um, and then there are the Yungu people. So you've got a kind of four-cornered contest for, for access to this land. And the Bark Petition was so significant because it was the first time that a formal petition had been put to Parliament 
not by Indigenous people, that had been happening for a while, but had been put in this amalgam of the uh, traditional form of any petition that had to go to Parliament. And Kim Beasley was the politician at the time, the Labor opposition po politician who went to Yukala and who, who furnished the wording for the official preamble. It was his idea to put a petition. But then the Yongle people thought, well, we'll do that, and we'll do, but we'll do it in English. We'll do it in our own language, Yongamata, and we'll make these incredible bark frames that are painted by elders of all these communities um, who had come together, that um, are painted with signs and symbols that to them proclaim ownership. Um, these are all signs and symbols that are integral to their sovereignty over the land. And they're different for each clan. And they can read this. You hand, um, you, if, if you handed these barks to anybody at the time, they would be able to know which sign and which symbol pertained to which of the clans and which of the bits of the land they were talking to. And together, collectively, it was an incredibly strong rhetorical device for exactly what Nadi's saying now. I hadn't thought about it like this, Nadi, until uh, listening to you, but for this idea of speak, listen, for that trade. We're speaking to you in your language with colonial literacy, but listen to us, mm. listen to what we're saying in our own language and with our own symbolism. It was a moment that was crying out for this, for this, um, uh, this, this, to make the connections, to understand country and to understand the, the concept of ownership. And this is what the Yongle people at the time found so baffling was that people could just come onto their land and take it because one of the things that happened was that the government by proclamation excised a piece of that Arnhem Land Reserve. Just basically got up parliament, sweep of a pen, took a chunk of it back and gave it to the mining companies effectively, took away the, the reserve rights and gave that to, um, and, and hand, in, handed it back essentially um, as special mining leases to, to multinational foreign companies. Um, in order to start to mine the bauxite and to big, build the big processing plant. And it was that move that they couldn't understand because, as I was saying before, the idea of people coming, strangers, aliens, intruders, coming onto their land was not foreign. Mm. The idea of mining was not foreign. What was foreign was that something could be taken without consent having been given. Mm. And I think it's this word consent that means everything. And, and that's the listen, that's the speak listen part of it. You know, it's so interesting that we're having this whole um, horrendous situation playing out in parliament at the moment that is essentially at its heart, there's an aspect of consent as well. And we teach this to our children. You know, those of us who have boys and are raising boys, you know, say to them, you, you can't take something without asking. I mean, we say that to our children when they're very little. Yeah. That's what we teach our toddlers, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, don't just take something, you have to ask for it. And then later on when they get to be teenagers, we, you know, we say you can't, you, you can't take that woman's body, you can't take her sex, you can't take any of those things without asking for it. And we teach our girls to be able to protect their rights to consent, their ability to say no. And and that's a kind of bodily sovereignty. Mm. And here we're talking about a land sovereignty, but it's exactly the same principle. You can't take anything without asking us. And that's actually all the Yongle people were saying. And, but they said it in this extraordinarily powerful way. And that's the reason these barks are still in, uh, are in Parliament House now, and you can go and you can see them, is because they're an incredibly important moment in our democratic history and, and, and tradition which was this first time that Indigenous people were saying, we have a voice, it's our own voice, here's our language, here's our iconography, you have to listen to us. And obviously, we didn't learn the listen lessons, we didn't listen because the Uluru Statement's now asking for exactly the same thing now. You know, that's, and that's the number one thing, voice, treaty, truth, voice comes first. 
I think this, again, this idea of exchange and of consent, um, but of, of trade in a different way, of, you know, permission and, and sort of understanding, this feeds into um, what I'd like to ask you about, Gabby. I'm conscious of the time and I'd like another hour, please, because we're nowhere near where we need to be. <laughs> Um, but Gabby, I, I wanted to pick up, um, you've mentioned the idea of natural capital and you've mentioned um, Ken Henry's own um, problems with notions of GDP and how it's defined and sort of conceived. There's another idea that I'd like to talk about because I think it's going to be something we hear a lot about later this year, which is ecosystem services. Now this is, that's a kind of jargonish sounding word, but Terrible it is about, term. it is about reconceiving uh, how we pay for what we take. Now, there was a, there's a wonderful quote in your essay, which I love, uh, which was where the economist described farmers voting for Brexit and as equivalent of turkeys voting for Christmas, which I think is fabulous. <laughs> but Britain now looks like being interestingly at the forefront of this sort of structural system of payments. Can we talk a little bit about what we mean by ecosystem services and how it might completely transform, well, maybe not every exchange that we make, but hopefully feed into a really new way of conceiving of that give and take. Yeah. I mean, at its heart, so if you think about natural capital, natural resources, and if you call it capital in that terrible word that we associated with economies um, and economic jargon, uh, it's really an asset, so it can, it, a natural asset. The idea of ecosystem services is the idea at its simplest form, if you think of a farm and if they're planting trees, that creates a, a positive benefit outside the boundary fences of the farm. So there's a movement now in some countries, um, and Britain is, is, I guess, leading the charge on this at the moment because they have to come out of Brexit. British farmers have traditionally been paid through the common agricultural policy to basically um, paid for their production, for the production of food in Europe those countries have starved. So they're very aware of food security, they're very aware of having a, an ongoing food supply and so they, they have been for a long time paying farmers to produce food. I think pretty much everyone has have recognised that's probably not the right way to go because it not only entrenches the farmers that are there, doesn't let anyone else in, uh, it, it, it doesn't create um, very good outcomes. And so they're looking now at moving to a natural capital model. They've got a big commission that's uh, headed by an economist called Dieter Helm. And they're looking at how can we, instead of um, incentivising farmers to produce a lot of food, how can we pay them to get better landscape outcomes? It's a very contentious idea. So people like George Monbiot, who writes in The Guardian, um, would say, and Kate Rayworth, other economists, would say that uh, you can't be... You're just putting a dollar value on nature. You're just seeing it in the same way you've always seen it. You know, you can head down the road here 10 minutes and see the Museum of Economic Botany that was, is all about um, useful nature, how to, how to create, they've got little paper mache models of fruit and vegetables and anything that you can make money out of uh, in nature. So it's all, it, Monbiot argues it's the same way of looking at the natural world. It's not valuing it for its own sake, for its own beauty, for the thing that it brings to the ecosystem. Other people like Ken Henry would argue that um, basically if you don't value it, if it remains zero on the farm balance books or any, any balance books of any landowner, then you're never going to value, you're never going to keep it. Why would you keep it if it's worth nothing? We've got a, a value for our shed, we've got a value for our tractor. Why don't we have a value for the purity of the stream that runs through the place or the trees or the native vegetation or the 
um, biodiversity on the place. It, it creates the wrong incentives. So I think in the next election term, we're going to see, hear a lot more about these terms. And I guess to me, the, the, the worry that I have, I, I understand intellectually the idea of natural capital. And when I first heard about it, I thought, wow, this really could be a game changer in the way that we value the world. I'm also worried about the sports rorts factor, mm. which is basically you could roll a whole lot of money out without verification and without proving that you've improved the environment. So I think that's a, a live argument that we're going to see in the next couple of election cycles. And the way, without that conversation, without the integrated conversation that Nadi and Claire are talking about, without thinking about the way the ecosystems are connected, the way the human communities are connected to the landscape, you could actually make the results, the outcomes worse um, if it's not done properly. I'm really, I am conscious of the time. If anyone has any questions that they'd like to ask Nadi or Claire or Gabby, there is a microphone in the middle of the space um, and a very friendly person there who, it might alarm you, but what they're doing is disinfecting it between every question. Um, I'm just seeing if anyone is moving. Thank you. <laughs> Otherwise, I was going to say, I've got hundreds of questions up here. I'll, I'll keep going till 6 o'clock and miss my plane. I'll make it a quick one. Um, I have a question for Claire. Uh, earlier you talked about the perception of Australian diggers and how it plays into the perception of Australian culture. Would you mind coming a little closer? closer? Yeah. yeah, thank there you. There we go. Um, I was speaking about how earlier you were talking about uh, the perception of Australian diggers within Australian culture. Uh, Roman Fafi wrote about this concept in a book called Arkonor of the Somme, where he uh, basically described celebration of Australian soldiers as almost like a substitute or hiding away from Australia's colonial past, sort of ignoring that and looking towards the Australian digger, Anzac. To what extent do you agree, or I'd love to hear your insights on this. I agree to the to the extent that it's a mythologising um, of that person or the, of, of that the, the characteristics of that collective group that we call diggers or or Anzacs now, uh, and that, that there there are real dangers to that mythologising. Uh, we see that with the reports that are coming out about what's going on the SAS in Af Afghanistan. There's a kind of impunity that is given to modern. Um, incarnations of those characters because of an a historic value that's put on the role that they've played in national development. And I think we see that with the mining industry as well. So that because um, we have this kind of glorified idea of who the diggers were, uh, meaning the, the, go the gold diggers and then the legacy that comes out of that, the broader concept of diggers, it gives an enormous license to the, to the general mining industry I think as well, um, and th to me the thing that has really struck me the more I've studied the mining industry um, historically and, and in contemporaneous ways and, and, and looking at something like Jukan is this, this sense of entitlement. Again, to come back to what we're seeing in Canberra in the, over the last two weeks, you know, and this is where consent and entitlement kind of play out together is the is this, the, the sense of absolute entitlement to take what they believe is theirs without actually there being any um, veracity to that claim, um, morally or sometimes legally as well. Uh, you know, the Rio Tinto blew up, blew up Jukan Gorge without consent and without real authority, they sort of had authority to do so, but there were a lot of problems with that as well. But this sense of entitlement because they believe that in some ways they are, um, as the title of my essay is, the, the masters of the future. Um, and that is a direct quote from something in the 1960s, from the literature in the 1960s. This idea, coming back to where I started with, that they're the agents of progress and development and growth for this concept of, you know, that Gabby's in, um, in, is interrogating of the economy, um, that it just stands alone as this kind of amorphous, good, um, uh, uh, untouchable kind of thing, that they are 
contributing as agents of growth and to the, the economy and therefore they're untouchable. And so it's this untouchability that I think um, that historical mythology about past diggers, whether they're soldiers or, or miners, is implicated in. Thank you. Um, I think we've got time for one more question, so I'm very glad you're there. Thank you. What, what do you want um, people who work in corporates and in government to actually do to move towards more respectful ways of, of um, interacting with the communities that they're supposed to be working within or governing? How do we move towards natural capital being recognised? How do we consider future generations? How, what does the average person who finds themselves working in the capital model, how do they actually move towards this stuff? It's a very small question to finish with. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gabby, I'm going to give that to you first and then I'm going to give it <laughs> to Nadi so and then we can, uh, and then we'll know what we need to do and we can all go home and buy the book. Gabby. I think, I think um, it's about an awareness for a start of, and, and thinking about your own role in in the kind of economic model that we have created, not just in Australia, but globally over the last few decades. I think this kind of idea that the, the throwaway society, the idea that you have to get your cheap almonds or your cheap blueberries and you have to have your cherries out of season, um, from the food aspect all the way down to the landscape aspect. So there's a lot of, in my area of, um, of subjects that I look at, there's a lot of discussion, say, in the water debate about how those nasty irrigators or those nasty uh, people out there somewhere uh, are you know, using our water badly, and that is certainly the case in some examples. But we've also asked for cheap food. We've asked for all the resources um, that mining brings. We want all the, we want the iPhones. We want all of that stuff, but we don't really think about how we're going to pay for it, not just in a dollar sense, but in, a, in an environmental sense, in a human community sense. We, you know, I think there has to be a, um, if there's anything about climate, it, it's about shrinking the world. It's, it's sh shrunk the world in the sense that we now understand that we're not, we can't act alone. We've, we're all connected and we're all sort of going along this trajectory um, towards uh, what science is telling us is going to happen to the planet. And so you can't remove yourself from that equation. So whatever it is, I know everyone's busy with their lives and just trying to get to the end of the day and get stuff done and look after their families, but I think some awareness of your part in that change and realising that behaviour mm. has consequences. Mm. Uh, I would leave it there. I think that connects to your chain, doesn't it, Nadi? Mm. It connects to the links in the chain. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I was thinking while I'm listening, listen and reflect. And then maybe the hardest thing is to have courage then to walk in that new relationship down a path that you're not creating. That's something that Aboriginal people would sort of say, come on, you listen, let's go for a walk and trust me. Where there's trust, you need that courage to walk in those different ways. I think there's something in that. Maybe we should all have a go, see where we end up. <laughs> um, I think that's a beautiful invitation to finish with. I've got a tiny bit of housekeeping and then a great number of thank yous. Um, can I just remind you, as you're all leaving this space, uh, when you're moving around the garden, when you're making your way to the book signings, the book tent, please maintain social distance. And please, if any of the COVID marshals ask you to do anything, 
it would be lovely if you could do it. Um, we have come to the end of our time together today. I would like to thank you so much for all being part of this conversation about Griffith Review 71, Remaking the Balance. It's a really stunning collection of essays, reportage, memoir, fiction, poetry. We've got some fantastic work on energy by both Ian Lowe, who I can see in the audience, and Nicole Hashem. We've got fiction by Inga Simpson. There's a wonderful piece by Matthew Evans about soil. We've got a stunning photo essay by the Adelaide-based photographer Trent Park. You can keep talking with these three writers at the signing table. You can keep talking with them through their work in the book as well. Writers need readers at the end of it, of course, to make their work complete. Our next edition of Griffith Review, which explores mental health and states of mind, will be published in May. Can you join me now, please, in giving huge thanks to the generous conversation from Nadi Simpson, Claire Wright and Gabrielle Chan. Thank you all so much.